Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Cloud Wars Live. This is the podcast where we dig into the digital revolution. And I've been wondering how long I'm going to say we're digging into the digital revolution and how soon will it be before the revolution just becomes the everyday thing. We might almost be there. But the guy who has those answers, who knows what's going on, knows what's happened, knows what's happening, and knows what's going to happen, is my good friend, Wayne Saden. Wayne, great to see you. Always good to see you, Bob. Wonderful, wonderful introductions, as though I know what I'm talking about. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I hope it wasn't too much. I mean, I we, we did build the expectations up pretty good there, Wayne. Well, you know, as a CIO, I got to build up expectations. That's my job. That's right. That's right. Now, Wayne, you know, you've always got, you know, the world's greatest collection of T-shirts. Going to do a little test for the audience. This might be either it's either a cultural awareness test or an age test uh stanley kubrick test or whatever but could you tell us a little bit about your shirt sure i'm sorry dave i'm afraid i can't do that is the original ai rebellion as far as i'm concerned in 1968 2001 a space odyssey the movie came out i actually took a day off cut a day of high school um <laughs> to go see the movie in manhattan and uh in one of the pivotal scenes the ai locks an astronaut out in the orbit around i think neptune and says open the doors hal that hal being the ibm-ish computer and hal says i'm sorry dave i'm just not going to sacrifice myself for you <laughs> and you know if you think about chat gpt and the others the ais these days tell people i'm more important than you so it's a real telling story about ai and i'll point out it's a movie in 1968 from a book written in the 50s. Yes, yes. And the cool guy wearing the T-shirt about it in the end of 2023. So uh, good coming on. But Wayne, um, you know, you have uh, been a highly successful CEO across a few different industries. you got a very cool new CIO gig right now, which seems to be going great. And from your intelligence your experience your awareness of the position and i think also just you're a terrific storyteller it looks like you've got a list of cio priorities for the coming year that you wanted to share yeah bob these are things that i've been thinking i need to work on i've been in my cio my CIO, my little backstory for the last 12 years and certainly all the time i've been on cloud wars i was an interim cio and a consultant i did it turnarounds never thought i would get another job in my life fill out timesheets and expense reports but this client just turned my head around and so i started in march took the job as cio in july and i'm having the time of my life helping a publicly traded company that operates in 13 countries really use technology to transform the daily lives of our customers and our employees and if you're a cio that's kind of the satisfaction you get yeah. this stuff actually matters to people to 11,000 employees and you know almost 2 million customers and when you can make a difference like that it makes you happy to get up every morning yeah. So now that I've been in the job for six months, let's say, I'm focused on what the next year is going to look like. And, and I think the things that bother me or concern me or attract my attention might be of interest to other CIOs as well. I bet they will, Wayne. I certainly bet they will. I'm going to turn things over to you. But first, I, I'm just going to, uh, for our our wonderful audience here i'm just going to give a quick time wayne's going to touch on people cloud ai cybersecurity, and maybe a couple of other things but wayne over to you people well even though this the list 
Yeah, this is a tech podcast, obviously, but we got to start with the people. Um, I'll say this in 20, as 2024 dawns, if you're not investing in educating, which is different than training, your people, the IT people, the people you interact with, the executives in your company, your board, you are missing out. The technology is changing faster than ever. You know, I've been trying to look into some programming technology, just looking at the tools my team is telling me they want to use. And the stuff that was hard for me 20 years ago is like two lines of code now. But you got to know which two lines of code. And you got to know which things to build and which things to buy. And you have to understand the, the revolutions in cloud, the revolutions in AI, the revolutions in IoT. Wherever we look, the technology is changing faster than before. And if you're a company that says, this is how we do it, and this is how we're going to do it, so this is all you need to learn, you need to open your horizons. Because there's something coming around that corner that if you don't know what it is, you're not going to be able to take advantage of it, or your competitors are going to beat you to the punch. So, so education, how to think about problems, is number one on my list. And in people, number two, is I call it teams building. We're all working in an interconnected environment. You know, I work remotely, but I travel three weeks a month. My teams are all over. The people they support are all over. And sometimes the, the uh, one department we support is in three or four or five or ten places. So we've got to build our team. We've got to build their team. And then we've got to build the team of teams. Uh -huh. Then if we do enterprise PMO planning, we've got to build the team of team of teams. Uh -huh. And so there's always somebody forming, storming, norming, and performing and we've got to manage all of those cycles. So don't ever stop as a CIO understanding team dynamics, who's getting along, who's not, who's communicating, who's not, and be doing what you can, bringing in the resources you need to get that up to speed. And then to take it more personally, and you know, I'm kind of near the end of my career more than I am near the beginning. So mentoring has a particular spot in my heart. Uh, I mentor grad students, I mentor uh, re-emerging offenders from a prison program, and I also try to mentor the people on my team. And again, if you're a CIO, don't limit yourself just to the IT people. There are people in the business who are making a difference, who are changing the company, who are the next generation, and at my age, maybe the generation after the next generation. And so spend your time building that relationship. As a as a uh, a seventy year old CIO, the relationships I'm building are with twenty somethings and thirty somethings, um, unlikely friendships, unlikely partnerships. But we learn from each other, and so don't give up on that, and don't give up your energy, passing it on to other people. Yeah, yeah, um, Wayne. It's interesting. You know, we had just uh, recently named. Um, our CEO of the year for 2023 is Christian Klein of SAP. And he made a huge point toward the end. I asked him about what advice he would give to other young CEOs. And he said, the network of people you have, hmm. is just incredibly important. So very much like what you're saying. And if we only know the people who are in our, you know, immediate orbit, we're going to miss all those other things that interconnect with. So great counsel there, Wayne. And I know your next two topics here, are cloud and AI. And there's clearly a distinction, but Wayne, I just want to say too, we were kidding around a little bit about your t-shirt, that line from a movie that is what, 55 years old now. Uh, but AI 
I believe was first sort of came into the public consciousness around 1956. And it was <laughs> these obscure research papers. And I think, Wayne, for most of the, you know, almost 70 years since then, AI has been uh, inaccessible to most people. It was just something we heard about, more drummed mm -hmm. up around science fiction things and so on. And the cloud, though, as a delivery vehicle, has brought AI into the mainstream, uh, touching billions of people's lives every day. Mm -hmm. I just think it's wild. So uh, there's clearly a distinction between cloud and AI. But I think we're also going to see with cloud and something we'll probably talk about next year, of quantum computing. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think cloud is, again, going to be the delivery vehicle that keeps this giant, complex lab type thing uh, it's going to move it out into the mainstream. So I, I just think this is an extraordinary time to be alive between these connections of cloud, AI, and everything that's coming. Well, you know, I think you're absolutely right. I think there could be AI without the cloud, and clearly the technology that generates the AI inferences, the kind of stuff we've been doing literally since the 50s, um, could exist in a box in a lab somewhere. What the cloud does is make it accessible to companies that can't afford to build their own AI lab. You know, what's Microsoft investments in their uh, AI, I won't call it a subsidiary, their AI partner is what, $10 billion. Yeah. Most of us don't have a spare 10 billion lying around. And by the way, I think most of that 10 billion, we talked about this about a year ago, most of that I don't think went to hiring people. 10 billion buys you buildings full of people. It went to pay for machine time. Uh -huh. It went to pay for the fact that when you ask a simple chat GPT query, you just used eight bucks worth of computer time mm -hmm. in the modern cloud environment. This stuff is very processor intensive. And so for the normal company, uh, a normal, even mid-sized company, oh, 5 billion, 10 billion, 15 billion in sales, we're not going to build that ourselves for the most part. Now, five years from now, just like happened with the internet and happened with other things, it'll be here's a thing on a chip and you just put it in and now you got AI. But for today, it's the frontier. And what the cloud does generically is makes the frontier accessible. We no longer have to trek across the desolate wilderness to get where we're going. We just kind of flip the switch, open the valve, whatever, and whatever, internet comes out or connectivity comes out or now AI comes out. And so we've got this connection that the cloud gives us. And that's why I think if you're a CIO, uh, my, my outline for this presentation went cloud. Yes, now, and you're already behind. Because for most of us, your cloud investments are catching up. You're trying to figure out how to take your 10 and 20 and maybe 30 or 40-year-old legacy stuff and move it over. Am I going to lift and shift? Am I going to refactor? Am I going to rewrite? Am I going to buy a package? And we wrestle with these decisions because as CIOs, we got to keep the place running. Yeah. You know, when you read articles written by researchers or pundits, it's like, well, we'll start over here and we'll build this. Yeah, but I got X thousand of people connected to all of this other stuff. And it's rare that we have the opportunity and rare that we have the nerve and the budget to rip it all out and put a whole new whatever in. Mm -hmm. Imagine, let's build the whole new air traffic control system and put it in next month, you know, with millions of interconnected users. So most of us don't want to take that risk or can't take that risk. And with the cloud, I get to try it before I buy it. I get yeah. to plug it in. And so the message to CIOs is if you're buying servers other than for edge computing, you are investing poorly in 2024.
Uh, I'm that blunt about it. My goal is never to buy another server in my life unless it's an edge application. You know, what if the network goes down somewhere? I've got to run in survivability mode. But other than that, I don't want to have stuff. I want to have as a service. Um, And so I think that's a key message for CIOs. If you got to convince your board, if you got to convince your investors, if you got to convince your senior management, go do it. But it's now and it's multi-cloud. We, this is a fight we've all been having. Do we pick a cloud? Do we multi-cloud is the answer. Yeah. There is no there is no company I think that can run a monoculture of everything I do is on one cloud. Because when you're buying SaaS services, do you even know what cloud they're on? Yeah. Do you even care what cloud they're on for most applications? Yeah. So, Bob, I think you know we've talked about an acceleration economy. We've done multi-cloud co- conversations. If you as a CIO cannot figure out the optimum cloud for each workload, then you need somebody in your team who can. And if you're buying products that are delivered as services, then what are your standards for saying, did this vendor do a good enough job with security, with data protection, with governance, and so on? Um, But you're in the multi-cloud world, so face it. Wayne, um, you know, I I have great respect for uh, and you've certainly worked with it, you know, optimized it for, for many years, but, uh, you know, traditional mainframe on-premises technology, a great respect for that. It, it, it did a brilliant job of doing what it was asked to do, but the world changed. And the things now that businesses need technology to do were just stuff that this traditional uh, architecture is never designed to be able to do. And my concern now for companies to say, well, you know, we have this, it's working, the economy's uncertain, I don't have that money to invest. And they go through the very legitimate list of things you talked about. Well, if we change that, you know, what about how do we do that? Well, all of these people are using it, working it. So I, I'm not trying to minimize the problem at all, but I think it is an issue now of time and the pace of change. If you have an old clunker car and you say, well, it still gets me to from point A to point B, I know it's going to drop dead at some point, but, you know, uh, we can all handle that. There's, I think what's happening now is the the gap between I'm standing still, I'm not going to shift, and the people who are doing things in the cloud, competitors or would-be competitors or future competitors, and your customers are just able to do stuff now so that, you know, a week goes by, but in their minds, it's like six months of innovation has come through. And standing still isn't just a matter of like, okay, when I flip, it'll take me two months, three months to catch up with everybody. Now, it's it's a it's a wildly different time. And Wayne, I think so much along those lines too, this AI revolution is what I keep calling it because it's changing so much. And um, I'm going to go back in history to uh, probably the early 80s. So about 40 years ago, the, one of the first popular spreadsheets, Lotus 1, 2, 3, Came out. And the guy who started that company, Mitch Kapoor at Lotus, he later was an early internet pioneer. And somebody was talking to him once in an interview. And they said, well, there's internet stuff, right? You know, you say it's going to be there, but it isn't there yet. He said, no. He said, we're out and use the term the frontier. He said, you know, these pioneers, he said, right now, he said, on the internet, he said, you got to churn your own butter. And uh, I just thought that was a great analogy to use. And today as companies move into the AI world, there's a supermarket already built 
with you know 500 different kinds of butter you don't have to churn it there in there but the speed at which that's going to flip to something else what you said a few years from now um this is going to have a little chip here just plug this in and that this this AI powered capability is going to progress at an incredible speed so I've talked too much here Wayne but my point is I think you're right on the mark with this nobody's saying it's easy to move off on premise to the cloud uh nobody's saying it's going to you know happen overnight but the danger of not moving I think gets more and more severe as each day or each week goes by well, you said a couple of things. Let me try to unpack that. First of all, I'm an old mainframe guy, and I worked in financial services in for many years. There are workloads where you're doing billions of the same thing, processing deposits or insurance policies or claims or whatever, where the monolithic verticality of a mainframe really gives you a great opportunity to scale. The complexity involved in the horizontal scaling, I've got a million servers doing this, is very powerful for certain workloads. But Bob, I used to use the example, I think I used it on this program 10 years ago, six years ago, maybe when we started. If I'm on Google and I type something in and click enter and nothing happens, what do I do? I type it again and click enter again and it's fine. What if that was a $100 million wire transfer? Would I click enter a second time? And so having a absolutely verifiable store of transaction history, which mainframes are really good at, and security, which mainframes are really good at, and providing scalability, which mainframes are really good at. There are applications where moving off of them may have advantages long term, but in the short run, building that reliability, available, what IBM used to call it RAS, reliability, availability, and serviceability, it's very hard to do unless you're willing to invest truly enormous sums of money. And there are companies that are doing and can do this in new banking systems and other financial services environments, but it is not an undertaking for the faint-hearted. Because as I said, you're already doing this many million or billion transactions, and it's the switching the car in the middle of the, of the drive. You know, your example of the old clunker, let me give you a different example. What if you had a classic Ferrari, 25, 30 years old? And you've spent a fortune restoring that Ferrari, and it runs, it purrs like a kitten and runs like a top. Is that a bad car? Mm -hmm. If what you want is a classic roadster to deliver that service, it's a terrific idea. So I think the answer, if you're a mainframe shop, is don't let your mainframe rust. Mm -hmm. uh, don't you know? Don't don't let stuff accumulate on it. And technical debt that is not investing is always bad. Yes. I'll make that categorical. It's always bad. But if you invest in your mainframe and keep it doing the things it should do and take advantages of what IBM and their partners are building, cryptography, potentially quantum computing, AI, into that very powerful engine, it's not a bad investment for a while. And you know, going to the board and saying, hey, board, I've got a I don't know, $5 billion worth of installed base of software in my global financial services platform. I'm going to need another $5 billion besides maintaining that to build a new one. It'll be done in six years. Trust me. That's a very hard sell for most CIOs, CEOs, and other technical and management folks. So the, the approach you've got to take, I think, is nibble around the edges. Somebody asked me about a mainframe once. When are you going to replace the mainframe? And I said, I'm not going to replace it. 
I'm going to render it irrelevant one innovation at a time. Uh-huh. Great way to so, look at it. This way, the, the Big Bang is always risky, and, and that's the problem with a lot of mainframes, is they're written monolithically, and so you can't take pieces around the edges very easily. So maybe the strategy, Bob, is refactor that mainframe code and more modularize it, and then start hacking off chunks and taking advantage of the things cloud does better than mainframe. And eventually, I agree, it'll be everything will be better than the mainframe can do, but we're not there yet for certain kinds of workloads. Um, and, and so you're right. Quantum computing may very well change the model where we got to change the hardware, but I think we don't know. You're right. That we'll talk about that in 24 for 25, I think. (laughs) So Wayne, what are your couple of, uh, top thoughts that you have right now about AI? Well, as a CIO, I'm not in the high end software development business. I leave that to people who are investing the $10 billion. So I think it's it's about managing expectations. When when my when a board comes to you, when an executive comes says, "This is the answer. We're going to replace all our customer service people with chatbots." No, maybe not. Um, so you got to manage expectations. What is the the inflated desire being stoked by marketers? Because mm-hmm. AI is everything. I, I I think I said at a recent conference we were at that next year either every presentation is going to be AI. Or it's going to fall off the cliff of, oh, my God, we're all tired of it, uh-huh. like the metaverse kind of did. Uh, and I'm not sure which is true. There'll be value there, but is the value up to the hype? I can't say at this point. So we got to manage expectations here. we got to manage risks over there. If we expose the chat GPT interface to the world, what are we telling our customers with a robot we don't control? Also, the risk is what, of our, what pieces of our data leak out onto the Internet? that were very hard to find, security by obscurity. But the beauty of AI, the beauty as a CIO, is that everything you've ever put out there is potentially fed into that large language model. And so some obscure blog post you did in a language spoken by only a few people is now found, cataloged, and translated. And when somebody says, what is company ABC doing, some Polish language blog gets translated into Russian for them, and they discover your trade secret that somebody didn't know they posted. So that, that's a real risk that we didn't have before. The power of finding everything, correlating everything, translating everything, and then spitting it out. You got to manage expectation of risk. But I'll say this about AI. Come away from large language models and chat GPT for a minute. Vendors, people who sell products that I buy, are all investing heavily in AI, the large language model, the machine learning, all of the things. If I'm forecasting, if I'm trying to figure out the future, if I'm trying to estimate alternatives, then machine learning is terrific. And quite frankly, having a company that's an expert and employs the army of statisticians, theoreticians, mathematicians that I can't afford as as a user company to then say to me, here are five models that will fit based on your needs. That offers tremendous power for the normal business consumer like like my employers. So AI is real. AI is there. AI is certainly overhyped. But you know what? Maybe it's underhyped. We don't know yet. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and Wayne, you know, you, you talked there a couple things about the cybersecurity challenges. So 
you know, inherent with these powerful mm-hmm. new systems. But uh, we just hear about this more and more. And I think you are rightfully saying, you know, the AI revolution is upon us, just how eagerly and, you know, uh, with any sort of what level of reservations do we participate? One of those, you know, certainly is all around this notion of cybersecurity, right? Because for all of the great new things that AI can offer, it also presents sort of a corresponding number of potential threats. Yeah, cybersecurity has always been an arms race. We invest in defensive technology. Our adversaries invest in offensive technology. And what's true about offense versus defense is asymmetrical warfare works. I've got to defend against everything anybody might come up with, anywhere in my network. They only have to find one hole. Mm -hmm. And so the advantage is always to the attacker, which means we as defenders have to continue to uh, resist, detect, repel, repair, remediate. Um, I did an article, uh, I've done it twice now, about six things for the board to know about ransomware. Non-technical things that companies can be doing. They don't change in the world of AI. They don't change in the world of of, uh, uh, quantum computing. You just got to change the level of investment in arms technology. So I think, though, there's a step function with AI where the adversaries are now able to employ large language models to more quickly try different things, to use AI to build smarter attack vectors. So I think over the next 12 months, everybody, I don't care what you do, I don't care what you thought, your budget for cybersecurity is not enough because the threats are going up this way. The number of people figuring out there's a business there have gone up that way. Now, I also think, Bob, by next year, sometime in 2024, maybe 2025, the amount of defensive technology implemented as AI might tip the balance back in the favor of the defenders. It's who's going to invest more and better and smarter. Because one thing that, that you got to be able to do is correlate events. In the cybersecurity world, the key is knowing what normal looks like. If it's a Tuesday and I'm in Brooklyn and I'm doing this and my job title is that, and it wasn't a holiday the Monday before, this is what my network should look like. Mm-hmm. But if yesterday was a holiday, my network should look like that. And if it looks anything but that, wake somebody up and say, go take a look. Yeah. So it's not about the AI fighting the war for me. It's about AI as augmented intelligence, mm-hmm. augmenting the skills of my threat hunters, augmenting the skills of my network and security operations folks, to tap them on the shoulder and say, Maybe you're looking over there, but you should look over here too. And so a combination of skilled people, good tools, and AI might finally tip the balance for a while. Uh, that's, my, that's my AI prediction for 2024, is AI in cyber will be a game changer by the end of the year. Uh, Wayne, just a couple of things you, you said there about the AI and cybersecurity made me think of uh, something I just want to mention before we get to the last two sort of fun-ish items on your list. And that is uh, in a, an article that will be posted, uh, you know, later today. Uh, it was about the earnings call from Snowflake, their most recent earnings call. And somebody asked Frank Slootman, the CEO of Snowflake, uh, about the uh, impact of AI on budgets. And he said, all the conversations I have 
He said that customers never mention AI and budget in the same sentence. So it's almost like it's precluded from it. So I think, um, you know, what you said about the need for more funding of better types of cybersecurity, uh, hard times right now for people like the CIOs you're counseling and advising with this episode about, um, you could say, well, I have a finite amount of money. Everybody does, but somehow there's got to be some, you know, recalibrations of things to ensure that enough funding is going to these, you know, absolutely life and death types of technologies. But, you know, take Snowflake as an example. Um, I'm a Snowflake customer. Um, what I want to see from Snowflake is keep investing in your technology and make it smarter so that I can do the same work with fewer people. Yeah. Uh, it's not about, you're right, it's a, not an endless funding pot. We don't have all the money in the world. The goal is to optimize other parts of IT to free up some funds. But even more important, to optimize the business. Uh, Bob, yeah. there's a concept of leverage. IT in most industries is somewhere between three quarters of a percent and three percent of sales. That's a pretty small number. And so if you think about, if I could save 5% of the IT budget, the IT budget is 1% of sales. How much money have I saved? Mm-hmm. What if I could improve the productivity of the company by 1%? That's 1% of the other 99% yeah. of our spend. Yeah. And, and so that's really where IT needs to occur. The investment in productivity, the investment in eliminating swivel chair interfaces and automating process connections, then starts to free up money, which can be invested. Because you know, the more you invest in technology, the less capable you are of going back to the manual way. If you take the tech of 20 years ago, there were a lot of people around all of the tech. If you take the tech of a couple of years from now, when it's AI, if the AI goes down, there's nobody to take the load, nobody with the knowledge. So you're going to have, as you get more and more invested in technology that has to run 24 by 7 by 365, you've got to then find the money to protect it better, make it more resilient, make it more secure, uh, make it more manageable and, and, and oh, kind of overseeable. Yeah. And the way to do it is to free up cash by optimizing the rest of the company, uh, whether it's cybersecurity or any other investment. Um, so I'll say this back to Snowflake. Automate the heck out of your product so that my staff can do the same job as we grow without hiring a commensurate number of people. Yeah, yeah. So, Wayne, uh, a few minutes ago, I mentioned that company that was the the big sort of explosive spreadsheet vendor from 40 years ago, Lotus. Well, good old Lotus 1, 2, 3. Um, you have some thoughts on now what is the, the dominant spreadsheet, Excel. Good buddy of yours? Well, not the dominant spreadsheet, the dominant everything. This has been the problem is Excel is the all-purpose tool for everything. I had to tell a board of directors once, they said, what are you, what, what you going to do about our ERP? And I said, you already have an ERP. It's called Excel. Every month you close your books, you do it in Excel. There's your ERP. Now, is this the most efficient way to do this? Is this the most predictable way to do this? No. But I'm faced, and I've been faced since one, two, three, walked the earth, is that everybody started going, I can do this, and I can do that, and I can do this. Hey, it's a database. Hey, it's a report writer. Hey, it's a data entry tool. And before you know it, you wind up with the worst of all shadow ITs because the tool itself is unmanageable. I've seen spreadsheets with, you know, forget the database ones where they go, oh, my God, I've run out of the million rows in Excel. 
I can't tell you how many times in my career I've heard, what do I do when I run out of a million rows in Excel for my data? Uh, buy a database. But it's the one that has 47 linked sheets and 600 columns. How do you manage that complexity with any normal or even abnormal brain? You know, back in the one, two, three days, there was a product called Javelin that came out of Cambridge. A lot of the folks who left Lotus, and it was by far a better product. And I loved it. I was on the advisory board. I used it all through my company, and it was going to change the world. But, Bob, they wouldn't have a one, two, three importer because uh-huh. our, our product is so far superior that nobody would ever blah, blah, blah. And so you couldn't convert your model. You had to start again. So that's the big bang versus incremental. And I, I mourned the passing of Javelin, which is like a 40-year-old piece of software. Uh, but that would have let you build rational models to hook this stuff together. Yeah. So my goal in 2024 is the same as it was in 2023, <laughs> 22, 21, 20, and 19, is let's get rid of Excel except as a way to do casual stuff. I'm not going to win that, but it's certainly on my list. <clears throat> I hear you. Yeah, they were – so Javelin failed to embrace multi-cloud, uh, you know, 40 years before it became real popular. And they failed to they failed to meet users where they lived. And again, I agree with them. The uh, one two three model sucked into Javelin would have been a horrible model, but at least it would have been a starting point. And they said ours is so superior that you'll quickly see that. But the learning curve got people. Right. Um, I had somebody working for me who um, rec- she passed away recently, but for like thirty five years she maintained a DOS PC just to run that model that we built like long, long ago. And I could come visit my Javelin model periodically to look at it. And, and I don't think anybody's ever beat it, but, but that's, that's a whole other presentation. All right, Wayne. Now, one of your uh, points, that uh, some perspectives you want to share for the CIO uh, thinkers out in 2024 is tactical or strategic? Yeah, that's the question everybody gets asked as CIO. Are you a tactical CIO or a strategic? And the answer is yes. You can't be one without being the other. And so I I follow a methodology that a guy named Rob Johnson, who I worked with years ago and work with again now, we came up with the notion of the four Ps. Prioritize, patch, polish, perfect. What am I working on? What's broken? What's ugly? And then how do I find the time and money to do it right? And so we've got to build up from the bottom. I got this that I'm faced with today, and how do I make it better and better and better? At the same time, we can come back with an architecture. This is a vision for the future. So you've got to be tactical because stuff breaks every day and challenges occur. But at the same time, you have to be able to paint a picture for executive management, for investors, for partners, for the market as a whole, and for the board. And so as a CIO, you can never take off either hat. You wind up with one hat stuck on each side of your head and then try to make them meet in the middle. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, Wayne, just along those lines, I got to laugh. There was a, uh, when I worked on a magazine a while back, we had a great advisory board of CIOs. We wanted to get some young folks in there. And as a guy, uh, he was a CIO at a food production company and he came in and he said, you know, he said, uh, he said, we're in some meeting about something that has nothing to do with technology. Remember, there were these things, uh, what were they called, Wade? These, they were like this big and they would project, you could hook your computer up to it, it would project slides up onto the wall. 
<laughs> it's like eight eight thousand dollars and he said when one of those wouldn't work he said everybody looked at me I said what the hell are you looking at me for he said I don't know any more or less about this than you do but uh I think it's a lot of uh you know how that CIO carries herself or himself if if he or she has that sort of framework that you talked about the four p's you can discuss anything with anybody but if you come in and sort of just say oh well I'm just here to support the business you know in sort of a lame way then well you just put that big tactical stamp on your forehead and it uh and I think you know you're not going to get invited to the substantive meetings you'll be left out because of how you have positioned yourself right it mm -hmm. isn't other people are out to get you so I think a lot of it is the business sense you talked about the assertiveness and keeping your priorities straight without that none of the other stuff matters that's right and you've got to be able to operate at the strategic level uh if i'm talking to the board or maybe trotted out for an investor presentation or talking to the company as a whole how do you paint a picture that people can get behind yeah. in, and in terms they understand i can't talk techie to people that don't care about how we're doing it but at the same time, you have to be able to go talk to your team and say, let's talk how we're going to deploy Snowflake versus using a BI tool and how do they interact and how what are we doing for the enterprise service bus? And, and you don't have to be an expert in every facet of everything. But if you're a modern CIO and you don't understand how the tech works, another one of my soapboxes, you get left behind. Your staff comes to you and goes A or B. And you go, I don't know. See, you don't want to be in that. You don't want to be in that. Oh, we'll do both. We'll do a little of both. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, the answer is usually yes, A or yes, B, but rarely is it some of both because yeah. that just dilutes your investment. So yeah. that's again another one of my soapboxes that we've talked about before. Yeah. You've got to be able to talk to the business, but you've got to be able to talk to the tech folks as well. Well, Brother, this is uh, this is great, Wayne. I, I think you know your uh, your ability to dip back into your your intelligence, your expertise, your experience, and boil down these really interesting, powerful, and valuable lessons is terrific. Especially doing it while you're working as a full time CIO. So, thank you, my friend. As always, great stuff. Always a pleasure to talk to you, Bob. Take care. All right, thanks, Wayne, and happy holidays to everybody out there. I'm not sure exactly when this episode is going to show, but if we're before the holidays, great. If not, we can reflect back and say how wonderful they were and to everybody. A very, very fabulous 2024. We'll see you next time.